We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. 1 John chapter 3. As our hymn reads, and as we sung, you can feel like a child at home. We're reminded of that in 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. And listen as we read God's word. Follow along in your copy. God's word says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children... 
Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You folks were almost in luck today because I went down to my printer and off of that printer were rolling nicely folded white sheets of paper like you have in your bulletin, but there was no writing on them. So that was going to be a very short sermon. I still do not understand what happened, but I got everything printed out, and here we are. So your luck ran out, I guess. <laughs> All right. John, uh, sorry, I'm speaking about John, but we're in Luke, Luke's gospel, please. And we are in chapter 3 now as we journey through this section of Scripture, Luke's gospel. And I titled a message today, The Prophet John the Baptist. The Prophet John the Baptist. Now, have you thought of John as a prophet? Yeah, I, uh, one of my kind of missions in pastoral ministry is, maybe in the larger Christian realm, is to get people to stop thinking about the Bible as two pieces, Old Testament and New Testament but to get us to think about it as one revelation from God. Oh, certainly there are unfolding aspects of it, and a big fold unfolded in the Gospels. But if you were to look at John's ministry and what he said, it sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? John preached a message of repentance, what did Zephaniah preach? What did Isaiah preach? Yeah, we, we might say, uh, and I thought about saying this this morning, uh, you've never heard this perhaps before, but not only was John a prophet, and John was perhaps we could say the last of the Old Testament prophets, we might say that John was the last of the minor prophets. He actually didn't write a short little book of one, two, three, or 12 chapters, but he was a prophet indeed. Luke in chapter 3 jumps ahead in the narration to the next theologically important events in the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. We left Jesus last in about 8 AD when he was 12 years old. There in the scene in which his parents lost him and they found him in the temple talking with the elders and the scribes and showing great wisdom at his youthful age. And now we jump forward approximately 
17 or 18 years to the year 26 or so, 25 perhaps. John and Jesus are fully grown and now fully ready for the ministry that God has called them to do. They are around the age of 30, as we'll see. In fact, you can verify that by looking at chapter 3 of Luke, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. So Luke starts out this way, and listen to the historical precision with which he writes. Now, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, sorry, in the 15th year of that reign, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysenius tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Stop there for just a moment. What I wanted to do with this section is just to establish the time in which these events are now beginning to occur. And the best, most precise uh, marker of time here is this first one, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Anybody can go look back in history and try to fix uh, that date. Uh, There is a little bit of a complication with doing that, but we do know about Tiberius Caesar along with all the other Caesars. Uh, Tiberius followed the rule of Augustus Caesar, who died likely of natural causes, although some suggest that he was poisoned by his wife. He was 75 years old. It was August 19th of 14 AD. We know that with some precision. So 14 AD. So if you add 15 to that, you'd get 29. But that seems to be a little bit late because we had pegged Jesus' birth at around 4 B.C. Why? You remember why? Because Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. So Jesus could not have been born after Herod died, remember? Because he was born before Herod died. Herod tried to kill him. They went to, the family went to Egypt, and then when Herod died, then they came back. So Jesus was already born by 4 B.C., maybe in 5 or 6 B.C., but certainly by four. And so if it was four, and now we're talking about 29, Jesus would be 33 years old already. So 29 seems to be a little bit late. But Tiberius, because of some political machinations, had become co-ruler with Augustus when Augustus was in his 70s in A.D. 11, three years before Augustus passed away. So depending on the date that you use as the baseline, it's either 29 A.D. or 26 when John is writing 15 years after. So 11 plus 15 or 14 plus 15, okay? I take the earlier date because that puts us at about 26 A.D. 26 plus 4 B.C. equals 30. So there we are with the age of Jesus in accordance with chapter 3 and verse number 23. So that gives us kind of an idea of when this all began to occur, and we can kind of zero in on it. But there are other uh, rulers given here. So actually, it seems like Luke is really setting the stage, and he's saying, look, think back. He's only writing a couple decades after the events occurred. Think back to the time when Tiberius Caesar was in the midst of his rule, and Pontius Pilate was governor. Who was this guy? Uh, His name was Marcus Pontius Pilatus. Did you ever hear that before? His name was Mark. Mark. 
Pontius Pilate, the one we call by that name, was actually given the head, the given name of Mark. He was governor from 26 to 36 uh, A.D. This puts him squarely in the period Luke is talking about and means that Jesus could not have died before 26 or after 36. Are you with me? Because Pontius Pilate was, was reigning during this time. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. Now, when, this is different Herod than the Herod earlier. Okay? Herod, in the beginning of the gospel, is Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over the whole region. But when he died, his, uh, how can we say, his little kingdom, his little client state kingdom under Rome was split into four parts, and so there were tetrarchies. Tetrarch meaning, you know, one of four. Uh, and so quadrants, if you will. So Herod was one of those. He was tetrarch of Galilee, starting in 4 B.C. until 39 A.D. So his father passed, and he took over at a very long reign, and he received his right to rule that area from Augustus Caesar himself. Philip was tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis from 4 B.C., the same starting date until 34 A.D., so another long reign, 38 years approximately. And then Luke adds Lysanias or Lysanias or Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. There's a little bit of debate about this guy because there was a, a Lysanias earlier in history, a generation before, and they share a name. Uh, this fellow that uh, was, is more well-known ruled from 40 to 36 B.C. in that period of time, much too early for what Luke is talking about. But as you know, I'm not going to be charging Luke with historical error here. <laughs> He's much smarter than we are and much closer to the events, and he, remembers, he remembered things that were happening then and researched them very carefully. So we have all of that from verse number 1. We've fixed the time around 26 A.D. Then verse 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now this gets confusing because you think, well, there's only supposed to be one high priest. Why are there two guys listed here? Well, Annas was high priest, and then he had a bunch of kids, and uh, he was put aside from official, the official high priest office, but his sons and son-in-law, eventually Caiaphas, were in that role of high priest. So guess who really was in charge, right? The patriarch of the family had a lot of say still, even though his sons were, uh, or son-in-law, sons-in-law were high priest. So he was officially high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 and had a heavy influence over his son-in-law, who was officially known as, as, and actually known as Joseph, son of Caiaphas, who was the high priest from 18 to 36 A.D. So very long period of time that he was high priest. That's unfortunate because these guys were pretty corrupt. And they were connected well with the Romans. They had to be to stay in, in their position of power because the Romans put, put the high priests in place or took them down. It wasn't like it used to be in the good old days when the high priest and then his son and then his son and his son and you know they were supposed to be faithful and all of that. And it became more of a political uh, appointed office than it did a real meaningful priesthood. Well, anyway, all of Luke's readers would have known about the time that these events occurred, and, and many would have been familiar with the names of some or all of these men. It's in this context that John the Baptist arises, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He, we call him John the Baptist, but he really was a prophet. 
Why do I say that? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 21, verse 26, it says, uh, when Jesus asked that question of the Pharisees, uh, let's see, uh, chief priests and elders of the people, uh, Jesus asked, uh, by what authority did John's baptism come? Was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, remember, said, well, if we say from heaven, then this, and if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. All count John as a prophet. And uh, later in Luke in chapter uh, 7, I give you some other verses there, but I'll select a few of these to highlight. Luke 7, 28, Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So if Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, I'll take that. <laughs> He's a good prophet, very good prophet, in fact. Luke chapter 20 uh, has a similar phrase. So in Luke 20, that's in verse number, uh, verse number 6. And that's the same one that I mentioned before, a parallel passage actually to the one in Matthew. So the point is to say, that John was a prophet. We think of him as the Baptist, but I want you to reconfigure your brain to be thinking of him as a prophet. Okay. In fact, the Bible says the law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets were until John. So John was, in a true sense, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And you we shouldn't be fooled by that about that because think of John. He's out in the wilderness. He's wearing what? He's eating what? I mean, he looks like kind of an Old Testament prophet type guy, doesn't he? Yeah, there's no mistaking it. If you examine his message and compare it to Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or some of the minor prophets, you'll see that he calls the nation to turn around just like those men did centuries earlier. It's exactly the same. What is the message of God's prophet or God's pastors for people today? Repent and believe the gospel, okay? For them, repent and believe in God. There's nothing new under the sun here because there's nothing new in human nature. People need to turn away from their evil. Now, John's ministry, we will freely admit, was unique of course, and that he was a forerunner to the Messiah's first coming. None of the other prophets were that directly a forerunner of his first coming. Now, most of the prophets, though, proclaimed his coming, right? Isaiah, who could miss Isaiah? Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 53, you know, all of those. Isaiah chapter 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, you know, or, or uh, Jeremiah, there's, you know, days coming. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, all of that. Daniel, chapter 9, the Messiah will come and he will be cut off. All of the prophets did that. But John was uniquely positioned because he was the one who was could be the forerunner of Jesus in his first coming. And like the prophet bards of old... John chapter, rather Luke chapter 3, verse 2, it says, The word of God came to John. Let me just share with you a couple of portions of Scripture to, to connect this idea of John as a prophet with the Old Testament. 
in uh, First Kings. You don't have to turn there unless you want to do the uh, finger exercises with me. First Kings chapter 12, it says in verse 22, but the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Spoke to Rehoboam and said to Rehoboam, you know, don't go out and go to war against your own people. That's stupid. That was the word from the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse number 3, David is interacting with Nathan, and David wants to build God a house. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse number 3, uh, when, when, uh, let me go back to verse 1. When David was dwelling in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of, covenant of the, ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. What he's saying is something needs to be done about this. God's house needs to be improved. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. So notice that it says in verse 3, It happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan. The word of God came to Shemaiah. The word of God came to to John. And that's only the phrase, the word of God. If you look up the phrase, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, it happens over a hundred more times in the Old Testament. It's everywhere from Genesis to Zechariah. The Bible is full of the revelation of God. Truly, the original Jewish faith and the Christian faith were revealed from heaven to humanity. Okay, these are not made up words that some guys came up with cleverly. The word of God came from on high and descended to men on the earth and they distributed it to people through their words and through their writings. Christianity and, and the Jewish faith originally are revealed religions. They are not made up. They're not created by people. They are revealed from God through the prophets, to the people. John was residing in the wilderness at the time, evidently waiting for the word of God to come to him. During that time, he was undoubtedly, by by God, being forged into the kind of person that he needed to be, the man of God that he was. Often God takes his servants through times of solitude, through times of aloneness, through times of of, uh, great trial, times of great shaping, in, to ready them for the ministry to which he has called them. Remember Paul out in the wilderness of Arabia for years, several. Jesus took time alone in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, often up on the mountaintops praying all night to God, early in the morning. Moses was a long time in the backwoods of Midian, uh, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. God used those years and years and years sometimes to prepare them for the work to which he had called them. Now John had also the added element of proclaiming a new kind of thing. It says in verse 3, he went into all the region. After the word of God came to him, he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
So there are three concepts that we have to get out of this. First of all, baptism. Second, repentance. And third, remission of sins. To help us understand the idea that packages up these concepts, I want you to look at the rest of the verses there afterwards up to verse 6. Notice what Luke comments here. So John is out there preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, doing baptisms. As it is written, verse 4 says, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now, if if I read this and you return your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 40, in verses 3 to 5, you would find these words with very little variation. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Perhaps you're hearing it in music. Yeah, well, you know where it came from now, (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40. That message that John brought came from one crying out in the wilderness. His message was not popular. It was not sourced in the accepted authority structures of the day. It didn't come from Washington, D.C. It didn't come from Lansing or from any other state capital. Today, this would be like saying the messenger and the message came from a redneck or backwoods area of the United States. It did not come from the ivory tower or from the much vaunted scientific community. It came from a man dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. A man, however, to whom the word of God had come. The preacher proclaimed, like Isaiah prophesied, that people needed to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke is summarizing what John the Baptist, the prophet, was saying when, in using uh, Isaiah's uh, metaphor of the preparations that were made when a king would come to a new location or area. The pathway that the king would travel was, was examined before he ever came that way. Uh, a, 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 an advanced team went before him. They checked the pathway, they repaired it, they reinforced the bridges, they inspected it, they protected it, they looked for places where the king could be ambushed. Difficult portions of the path were avoided, low spots were filled, high spots were leveled off, The crooked was made straight. Washboard bumps were smoothed out. When the king comes, he's not going to just be a king after the fashion of the world with a political agenda. Notice that this king who comes will bring something that is much different than politics. Look at verse 6. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall will see that salvation, and that salvation is, in fact, a person. What is John preparing? He's preparing the way of the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord who brings salvation. 
So salvation here, this, this word, points our eyes beyond the metaphor of roads and potholes. It tells us that Isaiah and John are speaking about spiritual matters. The pastor's burden is that people would see things as God sees them. His burden is that people would see beyond the physical, the material, you know, complaining about the roads, instead hoping for God to save the people who drive on the roads. John is talking like Isaiah was writing poetically and Luke is reporting uh, under the figure of crooked roads, low spots and difficult terrain. Instead of paths that are straight, valleys that are level and roads that are smooth, these are all poetic references to a life that is fixed, spiritually speaking, a life that has been reconstructed. The life is not the rough patch that it once was, but it's calm and full of peace. You see that moving from the poetry to the literal meaning of the text. Now, you may pause just for a moment and ask yourself, was Isaiah really pointing to John and not to a future forerunner? The matter is complicated by the fact that Jesus came once and then he's coming again. So what is... What is a guy like Isaiah supposed to do? If he doesn't see that so far off, he just says there's a forerunner. And he talks about the way that this forerunner is going to minister, and lo and behold, John is doing that. Now, there's going to be a second coming and a second forerunner or forerunners. The first time was unsuccessful in the sense that the people rejected Jesus as king. John was working on preparing the way, but the way was not in the end, well prepared because John couldn't do all the work. The work depended on the hearts of the people in whom he was, to whom he was speaking, right? Their hearts had to be made smooth. Their hearts had to be made straight. They had to turn away from their sin. Thus, the need to make attempt number two when Jesus comes back the second time. Back to the meaning here, though, of baptism of, of repentance and, and remission of sins. I think the tendency here is to read this uh, quickly and assume, hey, listen, I've got to be baptized, and then I'll get the remission of my sins. In other words, if I receive the religious ritual of baptism, then my sins will be forgiven. But that's not at all the biblical teaching. For one thing, in that assumption, you didn't hear me say the word repentance. It leaves the key ingredient out. For another thing, people tend to focus on things external, it's always i got to do something to achieve status with God. That's what the pastor's burden is. Look beyond the, the exterior, the external, the, the ritual. We overlook the matter of the heart in ourselves and as we observe others. You know, we look at others and we think, boy, their behavior is disgusting. But we forget the heart of the person created in the image of God yet in utter darkness. John told the people they needed to change their minds about sin. They needed to turn from loving sin to hating sin. From loving idols to hating idols. And instead to loving God. 
from greed and pride to contentment and humility. They needed to turn from selfish ambition to serve others. In a word, he taught them they needed to repent. When a person embraced that message and turned to God in their heart, the way was smoothed and the path was straightened in his life so that he was ready for the coming of the Lord. God promises forgiveness to those that truly turn away from their wicked ways. Today, forgiveness and that turning, that repentance is accompanied by the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord, the one who died in our place for our sins and rose again from the dead. The person who turned away from his former ways would then readily accept the water baptism that John offered. That was his concrete way to express that he had been blessed with repentance and remission of sins. The baptism symbolized the person's attachment to the truth of repentance for forgiveness and thus that they received remission. So what I'm trying to do here with this portion of my message is kind of untangle that idea that, oh, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, I just get baptized and therefore I get remission. That is so far from the truth. You would not walk into the waters of baptism and say, I'm going to associate with John's message of repentance unless you had been humbled to receive that repentance in your own heart and you knew what it meant to turn away from sin. Then you go and you receive the symbol, the ritual that, that pictured that reality, that you had been, in fact, cleansed by going down into the water and coming back up. You're picturing that my sins have been washed away. I've been remitted, if you will. My sins have been remitted from me. So that's what John was doing. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And today, my friends, the gospel preaching that Christians offer better not exclude repentance because that is true. In, you look, it's in the Old Testament, New Testament, the whole Bible, okay? not the two parts, <laughs> the one whole. It's all the same. We're calling people to turn away from their sin. Were we to preach like John the Baptist today, we might say something like this. It appears that the lives of our fellow citizens are spiritually as bad or worse than the condition of our Michigan roads. The rough places need to be made smooth. The valleys need to be filled. They're just doing that work out here right now. Uh, on our road. They're going to tear that up this week and then by Friday put down the first course of, course of asphalt. And then by mid-October they'll have the second course down and should be all done, ready for us on October 15th uh, to have a nice smooth road. But to move from the physical picture to the spiritual reality, that's what our burden is. Just look around and you can see it. You can see the the poor condition of our roads. Oh, I wish that some of our political leaders would want to fix our hearts instead of fixing the roads. Nationwide, nearly 700,000 marriages ended in divorce in 2021. 930,000 children's lives were ended by abortion in 2020. 57% of Michigan voters supported Proposition 3 and its murderous intent to get rid of children out of the womb. 
48,000 people die annually by guns. 100,000 people died in 2021 from preventable drug overdoses. 40% of married people admit to having an affair. Promiscuity is accepted without question today. Media is full of filth. Vice is applauded. Confusion reigns. People don't know if they're boys or girls. Right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And we have not even mentioned people's relationship to God, which is basically to ignore him, sometimes to outright reject him or to be angry at him. Is there a problem? Yeah, there are not just little potholes, my friend. Those roads aren't even paved, okay? These are washboard bumps all the way. It's terrible out there. The condition of our hearts is at a low ebb in the United States of America. John the Baptist, if he were here, would say the exact same thing that he said back then. Repent, because Christ is coming again. Our people require a lot of spiritual construction. The pothole-riddled road surface of their lives must be torn down to the base. The road must be rebuilt fresh and smooth. Allow me to drop the metaphor. Our people must repent and receive the blessing of the remission of sins. That's why Christ came. God sent Christ to bless each one of you in receiving the remission of your sins. The nation must turn to God in faith and trust Jesus for salvation. Each one must prepare him or herself for the second coming of the Lord. Make his path straight. Smooth out the rough places. Fill the valleys. Lower the mountains. Get the sin out. Turn away from it. John went on to use picturesque language to confront the people. Brood of vipers. He said, not only did he call them to stop doing those bad things that they were doing, but he also told them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Look at verse 8. He says that, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. You guys are no better than a box of rocks. God can raise up children to Abraham, however he pleases. True repentance, the change of mind that is wrought when that happens, is not in itself the same as doing good or doing the opposite of the wrong that you were doing before, but true repentance will, by and by, generate a real change. If you continue to live like you used to live, nobody could say, it looks like he's repented. You haven't repented of anything. Maybe you said something, but it was not true, true in your heart. John also taught the people about this, this matter of Abraham. Your ethnic heritage is of no use in this matter. You have no privilege just because you're a Jewish person. Okay? People talk about white privilege today, Jewish privilege, American privilege. You have no privilege before God. Every mouth needs to just be quiet before God because all are guilty. That's Romans chapter 3's teaching, right? John also taught that judgment is impending. The matter is urgent because the axe blade is touching the base of the trees. Did you see that? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. What does that mean? 
That means that construction season starts right now. Okay? It didn't start in uh, March. It doesn't wait until next spring to start. Now is the time of salvation. In other words, now is the time of reconstruction. You need to be saved today because the axe is laid to the root of the trees. If there's no fruit of repentance, then the tree will be chopped down and cast into the fire, and you're the tree. And I don't think I need to explain the metaphor, do I? The audience went on then in chapter 3, and they said in verse number 10, it says, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? So John answered them. He said, share resources. This is fruits worthy of repentance. Don't embezzle funds. Don't take advantage of your post to harm others. Be content with what you have received as your wages. Boy, some people could hear that today. There are a couple responses to John. One, we're almost done. Hang in there, okay? especially you young people. All right, Hang in there. Two responses, basically. One was the general population. They were like, wow, this guy, this guy might be the Messiah. I mean, he's talking like it. He seems like it. Well, he wasn't, but let's say this. He was the next thing to it <laughs> because Jesus was coming. And he tells them. You know, John denies being the Messiah because he wasn't. He says, one far mightier than I is soon to come. I'm not worthy to take his shoes off of his feet. Okay, as lowly as that job is, I'm even lower than that. He's coming and he's going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. Fire baptism, by the way, is a reference to judgment where the wheat is brought into the barn, but what happens to the chaff? It's burned up, turned to smoke. John continued to preach to the people and, and exhorted them and on, on this, this whole, just over and over and over again. He spent a whole season doing this of time. And he exhorted the people. By the way, exhortation is good for your soul. You know that? Sometimes when you exhort me or I exhort you, that's good. It's helpful. It's necessary. Oftentimes, though, we recoil from being admonished. Defense mechanisms go up. Anger rises. Don't, just resolve in your heart. Don't, don't respond that way. Take, take the exhortation of faithfulness and, uh, and thank God for it. The second response to, the, to John's message, the people appreciated what he was doing generally uh, and they were interested in it at least, even if they didn't respond. But Herod, the king, did not like John's exhortations. You know, what I, that, litany, that list that I just went through, a person who is a progressive listening to this message would gnaw their tongue and gnash their teeth at me for complaining about all of those societal ills because they would say, oh, that's just fine. There's no problem with that stuff. What are you doing calling us out for sin? You're so condemning and so judgmental. It's not me. It's the Scriptures. And it's obvious to us who are Christians that stuff is not good from divorce to overdose. None of it's good for society. Don't try to convince me that it's fine when it's not fine, okay? Don't say it's fixed when it's broken. It's obvious. Herod was a very immoral fellow. He divorced his wife. He married a sister-in-law, basically. And John was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. So what does Herod do? Throw him in jail. He, you know, he's not enough of a man to be able to take the rebuke. 
he's got to enter into political or religious, rather, persecution of the fellow. Luke's analysis of this behavior, God breathed as it is, remarks that Herod added that evil of putting John in prison above all the other ones that he had done. And I take this to be kind of a measure, like there are levels of evil. You know, there are people who are kind of just dumb, and they do dumb stuff. And then there are people who ought to know better. And then there are people who take God's uh, prophets or people as Christians and they throw them in jail or they kill them. They're going to really get it before God. Not a good idea to mess with God and his people. For John, the first coming of the Messiah was a critical impetus for the people to repent. The second coming is no less of an impetus for us today. We must prepare the way for him by turning from sin to Christ and receiving forgiveness. Can I say that again? You know that Jesus could come at any moment, and you're sitting there saying, whatever. You're going to say whatever, all right, when he comes back. Not really. It's going to be a bad scene. You need to be ready for when the Lord returns. He was coming just within really days, months of John's message. We don't know when the Lord's coming a second time, but he's coming. He's going to rapture the church, judgment, come as king, rule over the world. And the question is, are you ready? Well, don't wait. Today's the day of salvation, okay? Turn to him. Turn to Christ. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would work repentance in our hearts today. Some of us have hidden sins or habits, addictions that we need to repent of. Others of us have never really repented of our sin. We've just kind of held on to them or said it's no big deal. Lord, would you work? Only you can do this work. You might use my words, for which I'd be super grateful, but it's your work, and I pray that you will accomplish it mightily in the hearts of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.